May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, hello. It is a joy seeing all your faces from this perspective. My husband Richard and I drove a long way to come here to St. George's and join you in your life of ministry. And we're really thankful for your warm welcome. These past couple months, we've been telling our friends and colleagues about our move, and after the initial surprise that we would ever leave Massachusetts, New Englanders are somewhat limited in their geographical perspective, the phrase we heard over and over was, I'm jealous. We feel privileged to be here with you, and we look forward to getting to know you personally and the city of Nashville in the coming years. In this morning's gospel reading, we hear about the time that one of the disciples asks Jesus how to pray. We know that the disciples were Jews, so they were already playing according to their tradition. Our book of Psalms, of course, testifies to that lively practice of prayer. But on this particular day, it must have dawned on one of the disciples that Jesus spent an awful lot of time praying alone, sometimes even all night. And that all that praying had something to do with his extraordinary life. Jesus was such a vigorous man of action, sure in his purpose, brimful of life, and so available to everyone, and yet off he would go for hours to be alone. They must have wondered what on earth could be taking so long. So finally one of them says, Lord, teach us to pray. It's interesting that Jesus had never before given specific instructions he waited until somebody asked. And even then, the instruction he gives is so spare and simple. I timed myself. It takes 30 seconds to pray the Lord's Prayer. And this Luke version, as you all probably noticed, is even shorter than the Matthew version. But simple as it is, it lays out everything we need to bring before God daily so that we live life as God intends. The thing is, you can pray this prayer just as it is, verbatim, but you can also use it as a sort of outline and fill it in with the details of your own actual life. So you can pray it in 30 seconds or you can pray it all night. Structurally, the prayer consists of an address, Father, and two sets of petitions. The first set has to do with God. Hallowed be your name, and your kingdom come. The second set of petitions has to do with our needs and concerns. Give us our daily bread and forgive us our sins. 
Do not bring us to the time of trial. This morning, I'd like to think through with you about that first word, about the implications of that initial address. Father. Jesus prays, Father. He doesn't teach his close followers to address the creator of all things as most high God or even Lord. He prays, Father. It would have been Abba in Aramaic. It's an intimate, relational term. Now, for some of you here this morning, when Jesus says, you can speak to God in this particularly familiar way. Something opens in your spirit. You no longer imagine that when you pray, you are entering into a somewhat uncomfortable conversation with the headmaster from a Dickens novel, like Mr. Creakle from David Copperfield. Instead, when you pray, Father, you let down your guard. You can just be normal and trusting as you would with your own father. You can say things as they really are, knowing that God, your father, desires all that is good for you, forgives you for things you do not even know that you have done or left undone, protects you, actually enjoys you as you are today coming into his presence. You know, maybe this morning wearing your pajamas or your work shirt or with your hair still wet from the shower. Some of you can imagine the love you have as a parent for your child and that begins to open your understanding of God's particular love for you. But for some here this morning, the shortcomings of your own actual father present an obstacle to this letting down of your guard. Perhaps your father was absent or harsh or worse, and that experience of lack of love distorts the word father. That is a very important reality. The trauma of that experience would need to be healed before father language would really mean what Jesus intends. And of course, that is something God very much desires to do for us, to heal us and restore us to our true identity as beloved, cherished children. That desire and intention of God is wrapped up in thy kingdom come, which is God setting to right things that weren't and aren't. Uh, several years ago, we heard an amazing story from the priest who actually formed our family as Christians. He had always thought that the man who had brought him up was his biological father. But he found out after that man died, that he was not. He was his adoptive father. You see, his mother, Jürgen was the priest's name, Jürgen's mother uh, was a German, and she was in a refugee camp, and she got pregnant. 
And the man who was responsible didn't want to have anything to do with that baby. But while she was still pregnant, another man fell in love with her and he said, I want you to marry me and I want to be a father to your child. And he did that faithfully all his life. And for my priest friend, that was just uh, such an incarnation of God's desire to be our father, our whole father, our loving father, restoring us to our place as beloved children. Well, you know, even if that Even if the father language isn't working for you today, we have to remember that Jesus also referred to his heavenly father as being something like a mother, a mother hen who protects her chicks under her wings. But whether we use father language or mother language or just parent language, it will always fall short. The point is when Jesus taught his disciples how to approach God, He wanted them to know that despite God's power and authority and perfect holiness, he loves us gently and tenderly and personally. Well, there's another important mystery that Jesus' teaching his followers to pray, Father, points to. That is this mysterious way in which you and I have a privileged relationship with God that comes through Jesus, God's only Son. It's true that God is creator of all and that in that way, he is father of all. However, the Bible describes how humanity tainted that privileged relationship by rejecting God. And that rejection distorts our feelings about God. Our Colossians reading today describes this. Actually, earlier in the week, Father Martin was leading our daily staff prayer time, and he read from an earlier section of the Colossians reading, and it says it quite bluntly. And you, who were once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his fleshly body. This is Jesus through death, so as to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him, him being God the Father. This verse is describing how before Jesus, before his reconciling gift of his life on the cross, before our receiving that gift as our own much-needed restoration, we were estranged and hostile in mind toward God. Now, I have to admit that when I heard that on Monday, or reheard that on Monday, even though I know it's doctrinally true, I bristled a bit. Really hostile? I thought back on my attitude toward God before the day that I actually turned my life over to Jesus. You see, I wouldn't have described myself as hostile to God. I thought I was quite open-minded toward God. However, I was frequently hiding from God, or specifically, I was hiding my activities from God. 
diurnal and nocturnal. I didn't particularly want to have to follow inconvenient Christian teachings. And I found myself irritated with God or the people who spoke on his behalf with some regularity. And oh, lots of parts of the Bible were pretty irritating too. But despite all those signs, I did not recognize that fundamental truth. I was, as Paul says, estranged and hostile in mind. Leo Tolstoy, in his interesting little autobiographical book, Confession, describes this state in his own life as he was pursuing the good life that does not look to the source of that good life in the reconciling love of Jesus. In Tolstoy's case, he fancied himself a member of an elite intelligentsia, which I am embarrassed to admit might have characterized my own situation. Here is an excerpt. Looking back on that time, I now see clearly that my faith, my only real faith, was a belief in perfecting myself. But in what this perfecting consisted and what its object was, I could not have said. I tried to perfect myself mentally. I studied everything I could, anything life threw in my way. I tried to perfect my will. I drew up rules I tried to follow. I perfected myself physically cultivating my strength and agility by all sorts of exercises. Here's the interesting part. The beginning of it was, of course, moral perfection, but that was soon replaced by perfection in general, by the desire to be better not in my own eyes or those of God, but in the eyes of other people. And very soon, this effort again changed into a desire to be stronger than others, to be more famous, more important, and richer than others. End quote. I don't know if that description has any resonance with any of you and your life as it does with me and mine. It really exposes, doesn't it, the end result of chasing perfection without seeking the one who is perfection. Unless our striving for the good life is rooted in the loving gift of the life and death of Jesus, in whom Colossians tells us the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, that striving is ultimately doomed because it will default to a kind of desire for superiority, for self-deification, for setting ourselves apart and over and above others. But through Jesus, we come to know God as the one who cannot stop loving us in a very personal and costly way like that adoptive father, a personal, costly way, like Jesus. 
In fact, St. Paul says that when we receive Jesus as who he says he is, he sends his own spirit into us. And we cry, Abba, Father. That is the spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The spirit of Jesus gives us love for our heavenly father. And furthermore, we find out that we are members of a very large family. Jesus teaches us to pray in a spirit of trust using the intimate language of a child. We rejoice that through Jesus, we have become beloved children of God, our Father. And finally, our identity as God's own children ties us to one another in a deep way that transcends all demographic distinctions. Our Father, hallowed be your name.